You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme, Israel appears poised to move on Rafa, despite the pleas and warnings of its allies. Indonesians prepare to choose a new president. A look at the foreign policy positions of the candidates later in the show. Hello, Andrew. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and today I'll bring you some carnival updates from Brazil, including how the middle classes fell in love with it again. And we'll preview the upcoming Foreign Desk special on the strange life of the First Lady, or First Gentleman, by hearing from someone who has lived it. I always tried to live by the mantra of saying that the most important thing I could do in politics was just support my partner and try and stay out of the headlines for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) And I sort of succeeded at doing that. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Israel still appears determined upon extending its assault on Gaza into the Strip's southernmost city of Rafa, despite an escalating global clamour for Israel to call it off. Rafa is now the last resort of at least one and a half million people who have fled fighting elsewhere and have nowhere else they can plausibly go. Even the United States, usually Israel's most patient ally, is urging restraint. President Joe Biden has said that a major military operation into Rafah should not proceed with wa- without rather what he called a credible plan to ensure the safety of those sheltering there. Well, joining me now from Brussels is Eust Hiltman, Programme Director of the Middle East and Africa Programme at the International Crisis Group. Um, Eust, first of all, though, we have heard similar things in the last day or so, especially from EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell, the UK's Foreign Secretary Lord Cameron. It's quite historically unusual, isn't it, for the United States to be this uh, out front in its urging of restraint upon Israel? Well, I suppose, Andrew, that it shows the degree of frustration on the part of the Biden administration when it comes to putting pressure on Israel to stop doing something that a good part of the world thinks is is horrendous. Um, But... um, you know, in, in previous rounds of conflict between Israel and Hamas, the United States would actually tell Israel to stop, and Israel did stop. So, so it is, it is, uh, there's a lot of pressure today, but compared to what we've seen in, in the past, uh, it is actually very little. And it reflects perhaps uh, a lack of resolve on the American part in an election year. I mean, you are right to note that the usual pattern of Israeli incursions into Gaza in the past has been that at some point America will make it fairly clear that that will do and Israel usually abides by that. It's clearly different this time. Is there any reason to suppose that having not listened up until now, Israel is going to start listening just as it's poised on the outskirts of what it says uh, is Hamas's last redoubt? Well, there's there's definitely a a, a, a imp, imp, um, impunity involved here, but actually we don't know for sure that Israel will carry out what it says it wants to carry out, which is a, an offensive on on Rafah. It already had a special operation there, of course, a couple of days ago to rescue a couple of uh, hostages. 
but it may be just part of an attempt by Israel to put pressure on Hamas to accept the terms of a ceasefire. Um, of course, if those if that attempt collapses, if, if there is no ceasefire, then Israel would, in fact, probably invade Rafah, like it has the rest of the Gaza Strip. I mean, nightmarish though that prospect is, um, there's a nightmare scenario beyond that, of course, which is that at some point in an Israeli incursion into Gaza, something may happen to the fortifications which separate the Gaza Strip from Egypt, which, uh, as it's often forgotten, also contributes to the blockade of Gaza. And that would, of course, lead the way open for those hundreds of thousands of people to flee Gaza into Egypt, into the Sinai Desert. How likely a prospect do you think that is? Is it possible that Israel is trying to bring that about while maintaining a certain amount of deniability? Well, you know, there are certainly uh, voices in Israel that have openly said that this uh, should be the Israeli objective. Uh, The leadership has been careful not to echo those uh, statements, even though they may harbor the same sentiment. Um, it, it is not clear at the moment. Certainly, it's an Egyptian fear that this will happen. It's also a Jordanian fear. Uh, King, uh, King Abdullah made that very clear in his uh, 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 statement yesterday with President Biden. So, so how likely it is, uh, is unclear. Uh, President Biden asked for a credible plan for the evacuation of civilians from Rafah. Uh, it's not clear that such a plan could even exist or whether it exists. Um, but it's, 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 it's also not clear where civilians would go. So if there is an offensive on Rafah, uh, we're facing a, a, a uh, absolutely humanitarian uh, catastrophe. Uh, you mentioned that King Abdullah of Jordan met with President Joe Biden uh, in Washington, D.C. yesterday. And Jordan, along with a lot of the Arab world, uh, is also united with the United States, the United Kingdom and the EU uh, in warning Israel against proceeding into Rafah. Saudi Arabia in particular has warned that there will be consequences. But what meaningful consequences could there be other than the United States uh, stating clearly that we will cease supplying Israel with weapons? Happens. Well, certainly the United States has potentially the most leverage. It should only decide, it needs to decide to use that leverage uh, in a more effective way than it has uh, until now. But, but Arab states, maybe not so much Jordan, uh, well, also Jordan. Jordan and Egypt have peace treaties with, uh, with Israel. They could uh, suspend those treaties or cancel them. Um, the Saudi Arabia has been talking about wanting to normalize relations with Israel. It could put that, it already has put it on the back burner. Uh, I think uh, it would still like to, to move ahead at some point. But um, uh, the question is, does, does Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel really care about these things at this point? He is dead set on um, uh, annexing the West Bank at some point in the future. Um, and so he, he uh, uh, consistent with that, he's going to do in Gaza what he thinks is necessary uh, to save his political career. Uh, and um, uh, and then move from there. And so um, only the United States at this point has, I think, the, the necessary leverage to uh, to persuade him to uh, to move to a different track. Just finally, while all this is going on, Egypt uh, is persisting in its attempts to mediate uh, both via and with Qatar. Do we know if that process is going anywhere at all? I think the process is, is moving forward, and there's, there are certainly signs because some of the, the top negotiators uh, have arrived in Cairo uh, today 
so, so that is surely a sign that that something is moving. Whether it will succeed is a different question. Uh, where there are a couple of major differences still uh, to be de decided. One is about the length of the ceasefire, whether it be six weeks or, or longer or permanent, as Hamas is asking for. And secondly, the extent of the Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip as part of the ceasefire. Joost Hilterman, thank you for joining us. That was Joost Hilterman of the International Crisis Group. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Carlotta Ribello with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service has warned that Russia is preparing for military confrontation with the West within the next decade and could be deterred by a counter-buildup of armed forces. It comes as a growing number of Western officials have warned of a military threat from Russia to countries along the eastern flank of NATO, calling for Europe to rearm. The United States Senate is voting on the final passage of a 95.34 billion US dollar aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, despite growing doubts about the legislation fate when it moves to the House of Representatives. Both houses of Congress must approve the legislation before President Joe Biden can sign it into law. And thousands of flight attendants across three labor unions will picket outside airports in the U.S., the U.K. and Guam today to push airlines for new contracts with significant pay increases. The protests include cabin crew members from 24 airlines picketing outside 30 airports. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Carlotta. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Tomorrow sees the undertaking of one of the world's more extraordinary regular logistical exercises, a presidential election in Indonesia, home to nearly 275 million people scattered across more than 6,000 inhabited islands, speaking at least 800 languages, descended from perhaps 1,300 ethnic groups. Indonesia will choose a new president. The incumbent, Joko Widodo, or Joko, though enormously popular, is term-limited. The wider Pacific region, an increasingly important and contested strategic arena, will be curious to see how Jokowi's successor positions this crucial nation. Well, I'm joined now by Erin Cook, a Jakarta-based journalist and the author of Dari Malat Ke Malat, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. I mean, First of all, Erin, let's look at the outgoing president. Did Jokowi have what we might think of as a coherent foreign policy philosophy? No, President Jokowi, he was very, very interested in keeping things domestic. He picked a fantastic foreign minister with Retno Masuri. She is a long, lifelong career diplomat. Um, he tapped her from the first cabinet and she stayed with him for the last 10 years. She's run around the world. She's been Indonesia's face out there in the world. While he's been busy at home in Jakarta, you know, building building roads and trying to build a new capital and all this sort of thing. It's only in the last couple of years that Jokowi himself has seemed particularly interested in the rest of the world. Uh, Indonesia hosted the G20 a couple of years back, and that really changed things up for him. It seemed like he sort of, sort of saw this event as Indonesia's debut, I guess, back onto the world stage. So he has stayed interested since then, but he's certainly not uh, particularly interested in foreign policy, I'd say. What about Indonesian voters? Has foreign policy been much of an election issue generally? No, not generally. It has been very, very much... Oh, it hasn't really been about any sort of policy. It's all been about Jokowi and who will do the best Jokowi part two. Um, apart from Palestine, which, is, of course, is always a huge issue here in, you know, the world's most populous Muslim country, uh, but... 
even there, it's more of a case of who can care the most rather than diverse sort of views there. I mean, the obvious thing that would seem like a more regionally significant foreign policy question is Indonesia's relationship with China. Is there is there any divergence among the candidates on that front? Not largely. Jokowi's um, spent the whole 10 years, and in fact, it's kind of a, a feature since Reformasi for Indonesia, desperately looking for foreign investment to, to get things moving. Um, so he's been pretty friendly with, with China. China has backed a lot of infrastructure over the last 10 years, and he's certainly hoping to see that continue. Uh, so the He's been walking that balance that uh, please stay out of our part of the South China Sea, but please also lend us some money with low interest rates. Polls suggest that the next president will be uh, Prabowo Subianto, perhaps ironically the man uh, Jokowi defeated twice in the two previous presidential elections and is now running with the current president's son uh, as his putative veep. If the polls are right and Prabowo is the next president, will anything much change in, in how Indonesia positions itself? I think this will be really, really interesting to see. So Prabowo has, uh, he's a long time career uh, military man. So he's, he's and then he became defence minister under Jokowi. So he's very interested in, in security issues, building up Indonesia's uh, maritime security apparatus particularly. So it'd be, that's a very, very big, important one for him. So, but he's a bit of a, uh, an interesting character. He does have a habit of kind of getting swept up in things and coming out a bit harder against, um, how to put this diplomatically, <laughs> harder against some issues um, in the world, security issues that maybe could upset these sorts of relationships that Jokowi and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs try really, really hard to balance well. And that, I think, in the next coming few years will be particularly important in the South China Sea. We've got Philippines and Vietnam kind of teaming up to, to hold China back in South China Sea. What Indonesia does there can really help change the, the direction for those two countries that are also claimants. Indonesia is obviously a big enough and significant enough country to chart uh, its own way in the world. As you were saying, it is the world's most populous Muslim country. I think I'm right in saying it's the world's third largest democracy. But nevertheless, does it see itself as having any instinctive inclination to what are becoming the two rival blocks in the Pacific region, i.e. China on one side and what you might think of as the, the Western alliance, notably the United States? and Australia on the other? Yes, this is definitely an interesting question and I think this comes up a lot in Southeast Asia um, where we have, you know, 10 countries that have had centuries-long relationships with China. It is not just a, a new issue here. Um, balancing China has always been a problem <laughs> throughout the entire region. It's the US that's kind of the new player here. Um, and the US can be well liked and it can also hit very much that nationalistic decolonial nerve. Um, I think what's happened in the last few years is we've seen China, um, the US's approach to Indonesia change where it's a lot more uh, happy to sort of let Indonesia take the lead, accepting that Indonesia is the biggest player in the region. And I think that's really exciting. That should lead to a maybe a different sort of debate in the coming years. Aaron Cook in Jakarta, thank you for joining us. And a reminder that the current edition of The Foreign Desk takes a still longer look at Indonesia's election, the candidates and its likely ramifications. You can find that at monocle.com or wherever superior podcasts are downloaded. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. 
You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. It is time now to flick through today's newspapers. Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, joins me here in the studio. So as you may be anticipating, listeners, we're going to get something of a Latin American flavour. Very much so. And to be honest, a Brazilian carnival special. I know we were talking on the daily, Andrew, but to be honest, I prefer today because carnival is happening in Brazil. So mm-hmm. I have some stories for you. Uh, I have four stories from do, Brazil. Do you mean it's happening right now? People would have got up early. To dance. Or they're maybe <laughs> going to bed now. Because, you know, the samba parades, they finish very late. It's a very, very Brazilian thing. But the first story here is actually not from a newspaper, from, from a magazine called Piauí, which is the Brazilian New Yorker. Basically, the title of this piece is The Middle Classes Recarnavalized. I, I don't know if this word exists. So basic- It does now. It does now. So I hope I'll, I'll register the word. So basically, it's saying that the middle classes now in Brazil, they are enjoying carnival again. There was not the case in the 90s, Andrew. I can tell you that. I was living in Brazil. People were very snooty about it. Mm-hmm. Carnival was considered, of course, it was very much celebrated in the country, but as kind of a tacky, you know, bad taste music, <laughs> uh, you know, and all sorts of things, you know. It was generally, and, and they, they thought the samba drums were dominated by those big companies that were doing ad advertising was not real culture, how things have changed. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, if you look at Sao Paulo, people were in the street blocks. I mean, that's actually very middle class these days. It kind of changed uh, around. So it's a very interesting piece. But people are reconnecting to uh, Brazilian culture because carnival is culture, in a way, when it, when it comes to Brazil. Well, let's take a look at O Globo, which is surveying what the Samba schools have offered. I mean, as, as I told you as well on Friday, uh, Andrew, so basically every single Samba school chooses a different theme uh, for their parade. So, for example, Mocidade, they chose the cashew, the fruit, uh, as a celebration <laughs> of Brazil. I mean, cashews are very important for Indeed us. Indeed so. And I love cashew juice as well. And of course, they chose ballerinas to dance. They were dressed as Carmi Miranda, you know, with her special mm-hmm. hat full of fruits. But I think it was just cashews this time. So, it's, so just, just cashew hats. But things, Everybody will be wearing them. Absolutely. Uh, and I think cashews are cool. I think cashews are in. I think cashews are in. Cashews are cool. Absolutely, but there was a political touch to it. So, for example, the school Vai Vai, which is from São Paulo, actually decided to choose talk about hip hop culture in Brazil. Mm-hmm. But in one of the parts of the parade, they had police officers uh, as a costume with devil horns, uh, and of course, the police was not very happy about it. They said <laughs> that it's demonizing them, literally, literally, literally. Uh, so, but carnival can be political. I think they were talking about police violence in Brazil, Mm -hmm. especially connected to the hip-hop culture as well. So I I love those different themes as well. Even there was one about radio. Agia de Ouro was talking about 100 years since the first time Brazilians could listen to radio. Uh, Is there possible, reported elsewhere, that we're going to see the abdication of the Carnival Queen? Oh, God, that's actually very sad news from UOL. The Queen of Carnival, Yvette Sangalo, which, before I tell you the story, let's play the song which is basically the number one song Carnival song this year. Let's have a listen. Yvette Sangalo, Macetando. Well, 
she sounds in spirited voice there, Fernando. What appears to be the problem? Well, the problem is, you know, in her, her kind of samba truck or block that's in Salvador so we're going everywhere in Brazil mm-hmm. and it's not just Rio there were a lot of issues with her with her block there were some technical issues that made her tra- uh, her block delayed for three hours and not her fault unlike Madonna we, we discussed this a few <laughs> weeks ago there was an explosion as well which is a gas leak Good grief. Be- because there was a generator that created the special effects of her little stage mm-hmm. and she was very scared thankfully no one died uh, and also the truck she was in at some point it was almost turning uh, to one side because there was too much weight in one side and then she has to say, she had to scream like let's go to the other side otherwise we're going to kind of uh, you know our truck is going to go go down on the floor so she said she was crying she said guys this might be my last carnival she said this live maybe she was a little bit tipsy because I can't see a carnival without Yvette Sangal in my opinion uh, just finally then in your opinion Fernando who has been the star of this year's carnival You've, you're giving me a piece of paper with a woman who is both overdressed yet underclothed on it she is my carnival queen this year. Sabrina Sato, Brazilian TV host, 43 years old. The interesting thing about her, she grew up in the countryside of Sao Paulo, not very associated to carnival. She loves. Her costumes are very special. And in that samba school, I think DNA was the topic. So I think she's dressed like science somehow. She's, she's dressed like science. And, and I have one little thing to say about her. She rents 18 containers with all her carnival looks. So... <laughs> Honestly, that's quite a lot of containers. So I think she could open a museum sometime soon. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you. As always, you are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You are back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. It is time to get the latest business headlines now from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us, it says here, from Dubai. Ewan, what on earth are you doing there? Hi, Andrew. I'm just helping the team out here for three months, escaping uh, the winter. It's actually been raining rather heavily for the last two days, I'm sorry to report, but the sun the sun is back today. Well, that's something. Uh, we will not be looking so much at the UAE as elsewhere, though. The European Union is extending a crackdown on companies accused of supporting Russia during its war in Ukraine, one might argue not before time. Yeah, it's the first time actually the EU's proposed sanctioning Chinese companies since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's mostly tech companies and electronics. Uh, the list also includes companies in Serbia, India and Turkey. Now, the restrictions would ban European firms from trading with the listed firms uh, as part of efforts to crack down on Russia's ability to get its hands on sanctioned goods through companies in third countries. Now, the plans do need to be agreed by member states. Brussels has suggested this before, but the early proposals were dropped uh, following resistance from some member states and after assurances from Beijing. I think it's interesting to see this in the wider context of the increasingly unfriendly trade relations between China and the West. China exports about $500 billion of goods and services to the European Union every year, imports in the region of $250 billion. So clearly, European companies don't want to put that money in jeopardy when many of their economies are struggling. Uh, As for Xi Jinping, he's got plenty of his own economic problems as well. Unemployment in China is 5%. Uh, according to the official figures, and youth unemployment is much worse than that. Something like one in seven young people are without work in China. Uh, And of course, this is uh, just one part of these trade tensions. And we've heard a ramping up in rhetoric, not for the first time, of course, from uh, a certain presidential candidate. 
Uh, and it's fair to say that uh, the incumbents in the White House at the moment has been pretty hawkish on China. So we've seen, uh, you know, a real ramping up of these uh, restrictions on uh, trade with China. Uh, and that will be of, of I will be of concern to Beijing. Uh, elsewhere, and unsurprisingly, we are starting to see movement on markets as people try to figure out where fortunes are going to be made uh, in the looming future of AI. Uh, one British chip designer, I understand, is attracting an amount of excitement. Yeah, it's all the talk of markets at the moment. Shares in Arm Holdings finished yesterday's session in New York up 29%. Its shares have now doubled. Uh, in the space of a week. That may sound like an obscure company, but Arm, which is based in Cambridge in the UK, is a vital player in designing the chips that go into everything around us. Now, you remember remember that we covered this story um, uh, a few months ago and Arm decided to list not in London, but across the Atlantic, uh, much to the dismay of the British government uh, and to the London Stock Exchange. The reason that in reality was because the company, particularly uh, uh, tech companies, can get higher valuations in America uh, and this week has certainly not uh, disproved that theory. The latest um, share price spurt, which has given a valuation of $150 billion, has been driven by the current feeding frenzy over artificial intelligence. Uh, Arm released its uh, quarterly results last week, and it wasn't shy about talking up its AI exposure. It's seen surging revenue and profits rated to sales of its so-called AI accelerator chips. So this is a company which is really central to the technology story, and they're trying to position themselves as another big player uh, in the AI frenzy. And it has been really quite a frenzy, I have to say. Ewan Potts, thank you for joining us from Dubai. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's show, this coming Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk. As of this broadcast, the number one politics podcast in Brunei. So thank you, Brunei. We'll consider the curious role of the first spouse, that person who gets yanked into the national and perhaps global spotlight with varying measures of enthusiasm because their partner has gone and got themselves put in charge of an entire country. In this preview of the episode, we speak to one of them. Clark Gayford, who from 2017 to 2023 was much better known as Mr Jacinda Ardern. I began by asking Clark how one even begins to get to grips with the fact that one's partner is now the Prime Minister. It is a lot to absorb. There's obviously a great big lead-up to that moment of will she, won't she. So you sort of are anticipating it, you're hoping for it, but then nothing sort of prepares you for it when it actually happens. What was the biggest adjustment? I mean, I'm sure nothing does prepare you for it. It must be one of those those learn-by-doing kind of experiences. But was there a particular aspect of it that seemed strange? Security is the obvious one, suddenly being surrounded by these tall, handsome men in suits uh, who followed <laughs> us everywhere and were quite keen to know where we were going at all times. And you don't ever really ever get used to that. So, yeah, that was definitely probably the most clearing. You had some experience of that, though, being a, a media personality yourself. Do you think that helped you adjust? Oh, look, I'm I'm on record as saying I think it was the key thing that helped me survive through <laughs> a lot of that. You know, like I, I'm used to doing media around some of the TV shows that I'm promoting or, you know, interviews and bits and pieces, but I wasn't quite ready for that level of scrutiny. You know, people that might not have your best interests at heart or journalists asking curly questions or people going back through years of things that you'd said on record to try and draw some sort of story or a bit of attention out. And that, that was certainly an eye-opener. 
We're talking a lot in this episode about the role that the spouses of heads of government can play. Did you give much thought in advance to anything you would like to do with the role? No, well, in New Zealand, there's no official role. It's certainly not Mm. like the United States. And so I always tried to live by the mantra of saying that the most important thing I could do in politics was just support my partner and try and stay out of the headlines for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) And I sort of succeeded at doing that. So for me, it was just keeping the wheels turning at home. It is a relentless job being at the top like that. And particularly some of the issues and things that we went through, it was just day in, day out. You have a cabinet bag full of ministerial papers that follows you home. A man knocks on the door and he delivers them. Doesn't matter where you are. One day we were in transit traveling through Australia and someone managed to turn up with this briefcase of (laughs) never-ending papers. And the workload is just phenomenal, you know, and and it was my job to sort of get a bit growly at about 11 o'clock every night to say, hey, come on, you actually need some sleep. So I I always considered that probably my most important job. But, you know, I certainly wasn't adverse to occasionally sticking my oar in on issues or things that I thought needed attention to be drawn to them as well. Is there an aspect, though, of the job, do you think, or at least to do it well, that you understand that for as long as your partner is doing this job, it's really not going to be about you, that you have to sublimate anything you might want to do for as long as they occupy this position? Well, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when one of those stars supernovas and you desperately try not to be sucked into the orbit because you've got your own (laughs) things going on. Thank you very much. But uh, (laughs) you can't help it. You know, like I didn't own a suit. (laughs) before Jacinda became leader of the party. And by the time she left, I think I owned five. So, you know, like life, life changes whether you want to or not. And it is, it is quite interesting because I, I had a profile prior to her getting the job and we would sort of have equal pegging going down to the shopping mall with usually older concerned constituents coming up to her with their issues of the day. And I was in music television and I'd get someone in a hoodie and a, and a baseball cap wanting to talk about a, a, a new album from so-and-so. And, that, and then that sort of flipped quite savagely and, and violently. And I, I didn't mind that at all, but I was I truly got an understanding of my place in it all at a, a rugby league club rooms on the outskirts of Wellington where I couldn't get near Jacinda. There was all these people crowded around her for selfies and bits and pieces, and they were all trying to get into it. And I sort of, you know, happily stood at the back of the room and these two young girls sidled up to me because what happens is when people realise they couldn't get close to her, that I would be the second prize. So I'd go, okay, I'd see what happened. They'd come over to me, they'd look a bit dejected, and then they'd come and ask for a selfie. And on this occasion, these two girls came over, and I happened to be holding Jacinda's coat, and they both started the small talk, and I knew what was coming. I knew that they wanted the second prize selfie, and then they asked, they said, is that Jacinda's coat? And I said, yes, <laughs> yes it is. And they said, do you think we could have a photo with with her coat? And I went... Okay, good. All right. So this is the pecking order. It's Jacinda, then her coat, and then I'm I'm somewhere down, down the ranks after that. <laughs> That's got to be a good day for the ego, a day like that. Oh, it's healthy. It's very healthy. It's, <laughs> it's, it's been very good for me. That said, at moments, not necessarily like that when she's surrounded by people who are largely in her favour, but at moments when she's criticised as somebody in her position is going to be and as somebody in her position should be, do you find yourself getting, I don't know, protective? Is there part of you that wants to write angry emails to critical journalists or engage with people on social media? I did. I made a couple of mistakes in that space right at the start, and then I quickly learned that that wasn't effective at all. And it was it was frustrating in that aspect that as soon as you flinch or blink or whatever, then that becomes a new story in itself, and that's the last thing 
that I wanted. It did get easy to compartmentalize things, you know, sort of low rent name calling and all the rest actually becomes, I found that quite useful because you instantly went, oh, well, and you discounted whatever the following criticism was that was coming behind that. The stuff that really got me was the really unjust things that would happen because often you would know the issue of the day or the thing that had come up, you would know all the facts and elements of that story. And then sometimes you would see it reflected in media and it not having a semblance of truth to what actually was happening and going on and just that inability to sort of speak out and say, hey, this, is, this isn't right. That was probably the hardest stuff. With your role in particular, I was wondering if there was kind of a two-tier adjustment, because first you have to adjust to the fact that your partner is Prime Minister of New Zealand, but you quite quickly then have to adjust to the fact that she has become, as no previous Prime Minister of New Zealand has, this global figure. Was, was that a strange learning curve? <laughs> it certainly was, and it certainly still is. And we'd try and have our escape. We would often pop over to Australia because we'd sort of enjoy a little bit of anonymity there. And so you got to sort of live back more of a everyday human existence. And then that started to unravel. Going to Australia didn't seem to be any less of a reprieve. And, and then it got quite awkward with every second person asking her to please lead our country. That would come up on the street. <laughs> That was the broadcaster Clark Gayford speaking to me from Auckland. You can listen to our full conversation and more besides in that upcoming episode of The Foreign Desk, which premieres this Saturday at midday London time. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm back with The Daily at 1800. But for now, thanks for listening. 